Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. How many of you like family histories? Perhaps you're a family history nerd and maybe you've done a lot of research into your family tree and your ancestry and where you come from and you know, going back many, many generations. Perhaps there's some of you who have no idea about your family line other than perhaps your immediate family or maybe there's some of you who are listening that don't even know uh, who your parents are or at least your biological parents. Whatever may be your situation this morning, what we are going to look at is the family line of Adam, and particularly the, the godly line from Adam. And what this chapter will serve for us is a transition almost, a, a bridge if you want to call it that, connecting from what we've seen from chapters 1 through 4 of Genesis about the creation account and what immediately happened after the fall, connecting all of that to then the next big narrative, which is the narrative of the flood in chapters 6 through 9. And really from this family tree, I know often we shy away from uh, genealogies, but the wonderful thing about expository preaching, preaching verse by verse and line by line and chapter by chapter, is that even if I'm tempted to not want to preach through certain areas. I'm forced to do that uh, because again, that is the nature of expository preaching. But even more than that, as we realize that every word of God is inspired and therefore because it is inspired, it is profitable and is able to teach us things about God and his ways and his workings and his plans. And that's what we'll see even this morning from this genealogy and from Genesis 5. By way of outline, I've, I've got uh, three propositional phrases. It's, and, and we have much to learn from this, and I pray that this would be an encouragement to you as children of God. Firstly, we're going to look at um, the promise kept despite sin, and we're going to see that in verses 1 through 4. Then we're going to look at hope seen despite death, that's in verses 5 through 24. And then we'll see rest anticipated despite judgment in verses 25 through to 32. So like I said, this, this genealogy, it... It is a genealogy of Adam and particularly his godly line and where it'll trace the genealogy from Adam to Noah. Now some people will look at this genealogy and say, oh, this is not quite a, a, a literal genealogy. You know, some would say that, oh, generations uh, would most likely have been uh, missed, which is typical of uh, certain genealogies in the Bible. 
And so uh, uh, some would argue that therefore this is not necessarily a chronological genealogy. And even the ages and the lifespan of the individuals mentioned are not necessarily literal, but they are symbolic, um, they would say. Now my response to that is this. Yes, some of the genealogies in the Bible are certainly do have generations that are skipped, and particularly in, in Matthew's Gospel, we'll see, we see that in Matthew uh, chapter 1. But this genealogy in Genesis 5, it's a very specific genealogy, where specific ages are given to the fathers relating to the birth of their son, and then again a specific age to when they died. So you can almost calculate you know, the time period from Adam or from creation all the way down to the time of the flood and how, how many years that took. And then on top of that, if you, if you turn to First Chronicles chapter 1 and verse 1, we see the exact same genealogy repeated. And then again, if you move to the New Testament, in Luke chapter 3, in verses 36 to 38, you see the exact same list of names, no other additions, no, no, no names omitted, uh, just that it's in the reverse order as the genealogy of Jesus Christ is traced all the way from Jesus all the way down to Adam. So this is a very exact genealogy. This is what happened for 10 generations from Adam through to Seth, all the way down to Noah and his sons. It gives us an account of the godly line that existed before the flood. So let's look at firstly the, uh, what we can learn from this genealogy. And, and my first propositional statement or, or phrase is this, the promise kept despite sin, and we'll see that in verses 1 through 4. Look with me at verse 1. It says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. Now remember, Moses is the one who, who is the author of Genesis, just like he authored the first five books of the Bible. And he's telling us that there was some kind of inscription of this genealogy that existed during Moses' time. About this genealogy from Adam all the way down to Noah and his sons. And it, it was being passed on from generation to generation. Now this may, may have been a scroll perhaps, or maybe some inscription on a stone tablet. But whatever it may, uh, may have been, Moses is saying that he's used a written document and from that written document, he's writing down this genealogy. And so it says this, this book of the generations of Adam. And, and the phrase, the generations of, now I mentioned this previously, the Bible didn't consist of chapters and verses. Those chapters and verse numbers came much, much, much later after the Bible was put together. It was not originally inspired. And really, the, 
the way this book of Genesis is divided is according to that phrase, the, the generations of, or in the original it's called as the Toledoth. And this phrase, these are the generations of, it has the idea of what became of. And there are 11 or 10, depending on how you take these Toledots or th the, this phrase, these are the generations of, and that's how the book of Genesis is divided. And progressively, what you see is that there's a movement from what became of the general universe, what became of the heavens and the earth that God had created, and then it moves narrow and narrow and narrow to this person um, of Jacob and what became of him and that family line and then where it proceeds on to the nation of Israel. One commentator writes, the recurring phrase, the genealogy of, helps to bind the book of Genesis together and it keeps reminding us that God has a plan through a special human line of descent. It acts as a signpost encouraging us to look forward to the promised seed or the offspring. So that's what these are the generations of helps us to track. It kind of helps us to see where this is going and to look for that promised seed and where that is tracking in the book of Genesis. Now, we saw this phrase already uh, in Genesis 2-4 where it said, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Or in other words, what became of the heavens and the earth, the very good universe that God had created. And we saw from Genesis 2-4 all the way down to the end of chapter 4 what became of that good universe. And now starting in Genesis 5.1, we come to the next section, the next Toledot, and we're going to be told of what became now of Adam's godly line. And, so th and that's what uh, this passage is going to tell us. Look again with me at verses 1 and 2 of Genesis 5. It continues on saying, When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Now Moses is just reiterating what we saw in the previous chapter, specifically in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. And there's a slight nuance here where he also adds that God named them, meaning the male and the female, the, uh, as man, in the sense of that God named them mankind. And the reason Moses is going back to the creation account of mankind is to remind us that when God originally created man, when he created male and female, he made them in the likeness of God. That mankind was given the privilege, the very special privilege of knowing and communing and loving God. And mankind was given the privilege of reflecting the image of God in a way that no other creature was able to. 
And God had blessed them to be fruitful and to, to multiply and to fill the earth with other human beings and to exercise dominion over the earth so that the whole earth would be filled with the glory of God. You know, everything and everyone would then get the whole point of God's creation. It would be for the glory of God, to glorify God. That was the chief end of God's creation. So it would be an unmistakable reality when man lived this way for the glory of God and then multiplied and there were these image bearers all over the earth. The unmistakable reality would be that God is supremely glorious and most supremely this would be seen through mankind. There would be no mistake about it. This was the purpose for which God had created mankind. But then Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against God. And the innocent nature that Adam and Eve were created with changed to natures that were defiled and tainted with sin. Their, their nature got corrupted. They now had a sin nature after they rebelled against God. And so because of that, the image of God in them also was significantly marred. That ability to reflect the very character of God and glorify God was marred. Unless, of course, God did something about their sin nature, they would then forever be lost in that sin nature. But then God promised in Genesis 3.15 that he would bring about a transformation. That a change would happen where they would no longer see the serpent as a friend, but as an enemy. And by implication that they would love God once again, and instead of wanting to hide from God and run away from him. And exactly how God said that transformation happened with Adam and Eve, where they expressed their faith and hope in God, and once again, and where then that hope that the offspring would be born and would crush the head of the serpent was seen with both Adam and Eve, and we saw that in the previous chapters. But here's the thing. The corrupt nature, that sin nature that they now possessed, that would now be passed on to their offspring and every other human being that lived after them. Look at verse 3. It says, When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son, notice, in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. Notice those phrases his own likeness, his image. It's meant to make a connection and uh, even some differentiation as to what was said before about being made in the likeness and in the image of God. It's sort of like saying, like father, like son. 
You see, Adam didn't have a human father. He was directly created by God. He, he was created innocent in the image and likeness of God. In fact, that's why in Luke 3.38, Adam is actually called the very son of God. And now with Adam fathering a son after he's sinned and he's got this corrupt nature, then Seth, his son, was like him, made in the likeness and image of Adam. And what it means is this, that the sin nature had now been passed down to his son, but it also meant that the that mad image of God was also passed down to the next generation, just like Adam had. That same nature of Adam and the mad image of God that Adam had, all of that was now passed on to the next generation. And we saw this even explicitly with Cain and his line, didn't we, last week? Cain had a sin nature, right? Now you say, why? Because he inherited the likeness and the image of his father, Adam. He inherited that nature from his father. And so did the rest of Cain's offspring. But at the same time, we also saw that Cain also received that marred image of God from his father, Adam. And which is why Cain was able to build a city and even all the advancements that came about in the society from Cain's line. Precisely because they also had the image of God no matter how marred it was. But the focus here now in Genesis 5 is on Adam's godly line. And the focus is now on this one son, Seth. And in fact, the next verse tells us, Genesis 5.4, that the days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. So while Cain was a son of Adam, Abel was a son of Adam, and Adam also had other sons and daughters, the focus now here is on Seth as the son of Adam and that godly lineage. The same line that we saw last week in Genesis 4.26, who started calling on the name of the Lord. That line which called on God to act according to what he had promised. But why the difference? Why the difference with Seth and his godly line? I mean, if this line inherited the same sin nature from Adam, just like Cain and his line, why is it that one continued to harden themselves in their sin, while the other, recognizing their sin and frailty, started calling on the name of the Lord? Well, precisely because of what God had promised that there would be a line from the woman who would, say, who would hate the serpent and love God, and God would bring about that transformation. And that is exactly what we're seeing here. 
That even though the, the godly line through Seth, they too inherited the same sin nature from Adam, but at the same time, they have been transformed by God and they're able to love God and they evidence this by the fact that they call on the name of the Lord. The difference in the response in Seth's line is not that they were perfect or they somehow had less of a sin nature than Cain and his line. No, the difference in the response in Seth's line is that is what God had done in their lives. And that's why their response is different. So what you see here is really God is keeping his promise. God is at work here. And God is preserving a people for himself. A people who love him like he had said to Eve. A people who love God and hate Satan and his schemes. Even as sin and evil are becoming rampant through the line of Cain. And even more so, what we see here is that God is advancing his redemptive plan through this godly line. See, despite the fact that what is on the inside, that that every man now has a sin nature, despite the fact that of what is on the outside too, that there is sin and corruption and death and decay and evil everywhere and it's becoming rampant and there is nothing God... Pardon me, there's nothing man can do to stop evil and sin or even save himself. God is going to bring about that promised offspring, Jesus Christ. And how he's going to do that is through a godly line that have been transformed by him and that now love him and that call on his name. And through this line, God is going to bring about his plan of redemption. You know, and this should be an encouragement to even us as believers today. Because even as we see wickedness and sin prosper all around us, and and we see the difficulties of living in a sin-cursed world, you know, we might be tempted to think, you you know, what is God doing in all this? What we can take assurance is the fact that none of the schemes of sinful man or even the schemes of Satan himself will ultimately stand. No, as believers, we can be assured even today, just like in the days of Seth, even today, God is still gathering a people to himself and he's transforming them and he's advancing his plan of redemption through his people as his gospel as the gospel of Jesus Christ is being proclaimed to the people around so god is keeping his promise both preserving a line and advancing the plan of redemption despite sin. Now, secondly, we will see 
hope. Now let me just, as I've stated it here, hope is seen despite death. And we see this in verses 5 through to 24. Now, a couple of things that are repeatedly seen, a, a, a pattern seen in this whole genealogy that I, I want to particularly point out. Firstly, it's the unusually long lives that these men live. In verse 5, it says, Adam lived 930 years. In verse 8, it says, Seth lived 912 years. In verse 11, Enosh, 905 years. Verse 14, Kenan, 910 years. Verse 17, Mahalel, Lalel, 895 years. Verse 20, Jared, 962 years. Verse 23, Enoch, the shortest of, of them all, 365 years. And then even verse 27 and 31, you'll see Methuselah, 969 years. And then Lamech, 777 years. These men lived unusually long lives, not, not seen at all in our day and age. Now, you might be thinking, why? Well, one reason could be that these men live such long lives is that even as... God allowed them to live such long lives and they saw the effects of sin both in themselves and in the world around them. It was a way in which it would draw such people to God. And that's what we see in this godly line. As they lived long lives experiencing the sin and the curse, they are holding on more and more to God in hope and in faith in God. But a second reason why these men live such long lives could be just genetics in itself that God had, you know, in a sovereign providence allowed. Remember last week I, I mentioned that after Adam and Eve sinned and the curse came into the world and death and decay came in, even at the genetic level, entropy started. A, gen a genetic mutation and defect started happening. But at the start, even those years before the flood, the, the genetic mutations would have been minimal. Because there's only so many generations that have passed. But as the generations went past, the genetic mutation and the defects started accumulating and it increased and increased. And that would have ultimately led to a decrease and a shortening in the lifespan of mankind. And so that could be another reason why these men during those early generations lived such long lives because that genetic entropy was just still slowly accumulating but it hadn't had that much of an effect. And what's interesting is this, that if you follow the, the number of years in this genealogy, and just calculate the, the years and who was present during what time. 
Adam was actually present till the time of Lamech, the very father of Noah. I mean, Lamech would have been about 56 years when Adam died. I mean, think about it. That's, that's basically nine generations living together. That, that would have been something. And, and, and the wonderful thing when you think about it is this, that Adam would have been able to tell those up till the ninth generation firsthand, not secondhand, thirdhand, or through some other, uh, some other sources, but firsthand, he would be able to communicate to them up to the ninth generation of what life would have been like as he enjoyed face-to-face communion with God back in the garden before the fall. What life was like before the fall and the curse of how then Adam and Eve sinned against God even when God had only been good to them the whole time. And then trying to explain why things were the way they were. And even think about it, having lived more than 900 years, Adam would have become more and more aware of the corruption of the sin in his own life. And even as he saw sin and decay just all around him and the corruption of sin. And so as a result, you know, you can only think of this as a logical result that both Adam and Eve would have been ardent evangelists, you know, telling everyone to, to turn to God, to trust in His Word, that He is indeed good, and to keep trusting God, and to put their faith in God, and not to listen to their heart, and not to, to harden their hearts against God, and go the way of Cain. So Adam was present even up till Lamech was about 56 years. The, the other thing about living such long years would have also meant that they would have had lots of children. Even that repeated phrase, and he had other sons of daughters, you know, points to the fact that yeah, the, the population in the world was growing during this time even though only so many generations had passed. Now, just to give you an idea of the number of people that would have been in the world, uh, even after these nine generations, let's just, for argument's sake, uh, let's just say that Adam and Eve had six children. I'm more than certain they would have had more than six children. But just for argument's sake, let's just you know, take the number six. So Adam and Eve have six children. And, and I'm saying six uh, just to show you how even with such a small number, how large a population it would have been by the end of the nine generations or by the time you come to that tenth generation of Noah and his sons. So if Adam and Eve had conservatively six children, And let's just say, then those six children, in turn, had six children each. 
by the time that it goes through nine generations, that is roughly 1.6 million people in the world by the, by the time you come to the end of this genealogy. Roughly 1.6 million people. And I, I, I would say it would have been more than that because the people lived so long, they would have had way more children than even six. But you get an idea of, of yeah, the world had so many people by then even just with so many generations. But what's, what you should notice then is that in terms of the godly, only these men are named. Now, quite likely there would have been others as well who would have put their trust in God and even women as well. But I think it is nonetheless pointing to a reality that has always been there from the start. That those who fully put their trust in God will always be a minority. That it will always be a small group. You know, what comes to mind is Matthew 7 and the words of Jesus in verses 13 and 14 of Matthew 7 where he says that many will be on the path to destruction. Those who just trust in themselves and, and, and they're going the path of ruin. And then Jesus contrasts that by saying, but only few will walk on the narrow path, that path that leads to life, that path that Jesus has laid out. And that's the same thing that we see with this genealogy in Genesis 5, that while the wicked are, are many and, and there's a pretty large population already in the world, God is still preserving a remnant, a smaller group of faithful, godly people for himself. But even with the focus on this small godly line, there is one refrain that you will see, and you may have noticed it while I read this whole chapter, and it is this phrase, and he died. Verse 5, and he died. Verse 8, and he died. Verse 11, and he died. Verse 14, and he died. Verse 17, and he died. Verse 20, and he died. And then in verses 27 and 31, and he died, and he died, and he died. And what it's telling us is that despite the fact that this is the godly line, this is the fact that called on the name of the Lord, this is the line that trusted in God, put their faith in God, they had hoped in God, they are nonetheless also people who died. Why? Because of sin. Remember, God had told Adam, in the day that you shall eat of that forbidden fruit, you shall surely die. And then it was you know, further explained in the curse in Genesis 3, 17 to 19, that because you have rebelled against me, to dust you will return. From dust you were made, and to dust you will return. And just like God said, the judgment for sin and rebellion is now coming to pass. 
First, Adam dies. He's the one who uh, has the first natural death. And then everyone else also dies. And even today, each and every person, each and every person, without exception, dies because of sin. And what it shows us is the truthfulness of God's word. And even to this day, it shows us that God's word continues to be shown to be truthful. Because God said, if you sin and rebel against me, you will die. And every human being since Adam, therefore, has died. And what we also notice is that those mentioned in Genesis 5, the godly believers, that they died physically. And I think we need to keep this in mind, that just because somebody is a believer, somebody had put their trust and faith in God through Jesus Christ, it does not mean that they will automatically escape death. Believers, too, will die a physical death. But here's the interesting part. There is a break in the pattern of death in this genealogy with the seventh person from Adam through Seth's line. Remember, in Cain's line, in that ungodly line, it was Lamech. And there, Lamech's unrighteousness and wickedness were highlighted and details were given about it. Now, Enoch, this is a different Enoch from Cain's line. This is the godly Enoch through Seth's line. He is now the seventh person from Adam. And so he too now will be highlighted where his righteousness and his godliness will be highlighted. Look at verses 21 to 24. It reads, When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God, and after he fathered Methuselah 300 years, and and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. You know, twice it is mentioned that Enoch walked with God in verse 22 and then again in verse 24. And it, what it's pointing to is the, the, the righteousness of Enoch, that he was such a godly man. And this same word, you know, this walking, It was used in the garden of the regular meeting of God and Adam and Eve. You remember that? That God walked in the garden and he met with Adam and Eve? And then again in the next chapter, in Genesis 6-9, it'll be used of Noah. But but one thing I want to point out here is that even as you go later on in the Bible, you know, you will hear things about, you know, walking before God and walking after God. 
You know, those are things used of believers, again, in the rest of the Bible. But, but what's interesting here is, it says that Enoch walked with God. Not before God, not after God, but with God. And it signifies an especially intimate relationship. An intimate fellowship with God. Living a life consistent with God's will. See, this is not just saying that Enoch had faith in God and his word, but there was a particular closeness in his relationship. Now, by no means does it mean that Enoch was sinless, but it means that relationally, there was an intimacy with his relationship with God. I guess you could say it like this. Enoch walked in step with God, in in tandem with God, and therefore he was in close communion with God. God's word was held high in Enoch's life, and every aspect of his life was impacted by it. Enoch was conscious of God every step of his life and walked side by side with God. I like what, how one commentator uh, put it with regards to this walking with God. He, he says, quote, To walk before God, before his face, suggests that God is a spectator. God sees that person walk before him. The person is, as it were, parading before God. Walking with, however, suggests something different. It implies God too is walking. Enoch is walking with God. And then he goes on to say, they are walking together. When, pe- when two people do so, one can expect that the superior one takes the initiative while the other accompanies him. Consequently, wherever God decides to go, Enoch goes. So really, Enoch is walking hand in hand with God and just going with God wherever God went and whatever his plans were, seeing life exactly like how God saw his own life as well and living that way. In fact, Enoch was so righteous and godly that if you turn to Jude, and this was part of our morning Bible reading, you'll notice some more details about Enoch. uh, Jude really is talking about false teachers and how false teachers had gone the way of Cain. And then within that context, Jude 14 to 15 says this about Enoch. Look at Jude 14 and 15. It says, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his godly ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. 
You see, during Enoch's time, wickedness was abounding. People around him, the majority of them, had followed the way of Cain. And people spoke against God and blasphemed against God and and did ungodly things. In such a setting, God has raised up a man like Enoch who was a preacher of righteousness. He was bold and, and he confronted the godless culture of his day. And it's quite likely that Lamech of of Cain's ungodly line, the seventh from his line, he would have been the contemporary, lived at the same time of the seventh line, of the seventh one from Seth's godly line too. So you get the idea of the kind of world it was. People celebrating evil, indulging in violence and killing and every other kind of unrighteousness. Instead of honoring God, the majority of the people sought to honor themselves and live for their fleshly lusts. In fact, it was not just that they didn't honor God, they hated God. And it was during this time, Enoch preaches where he says, Behold, the Lord comes to execute judgment on all. So Enoch walked in tandem with God, with God. He had a zeal for God's glory. And as he walked closely with God, he confronted the godlessness of his day, saying that judgment was coming. And notice what happened to this particular person named Enoch, this particular righteous person. Verse 24 of Genesis 5. It says, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Now, if there was any doubt whether, excuse me, if there was any doubt whether Enoch died or not, Hebrews 11.5 makes it very clear that Enoch did not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. The only other person in the Bible that we know of that went like this is Elijah. God just took Enoch without dying. You can imagine those close to Enoch, they would have looked for Enoch but he was not to be found because God had just taken him. And the fact that Enoch did not die, but was taken directly by God into his presence, it's hinting at the reality of life beyond this earth. And really, it, it teaches us a couple of things. It teaches us that those of us who are believers, those of us who have a a relationship with God, that relationship does not come to an end after life on this earth. In fact, for God's children, death will not be the final word. Death is but a doorway into a life of intimacy with our Lord forever. 
that this temporal life, when we walk in this sin-cursed world, will be translated into a glorious life of living in the very presence of Jesus because that is what Jesus has made possible through his work on the cross. And beyond that, the fact that Enoch did not die, that his soul and his body were not separated as it usually happens at death, but that he was taken into the presence of the Lord with his body is also even hinting at the reality of what would happen to those who are alive when Jesus returns. See, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17 tells us that when Jesus returns, those who are still alive will not die, but will be changed will be transformed and brought into the presence of God. And what a glorious hope that is for those who are alive when Jesus returns. And that is also what is being hinted at when we look at what happened to Enoch. So despite death that will come to most of us, if not all of us, unless Jesus returns, we who are believers have the glorious hope that our life with God through Jesus Christ will not come to an end. In fact, it will become an eternal reality, an eternal life of intimacy with God. And that is the glorious hope that we have, despite the fact that we might have to face physical death. Now the last thing is that rest is anticipated despite judgment, and that's in verses 25 through to 32. Rest anticipated despite judgment. Let me just read verses 25 to 27. Now when Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. Now who is Methuselah? Methuselah was the son of righteous Enoch. And there is some debate of the meaning of the name Methuselah. But one plausible meaning of Methuselah is when he dies, it shall be sent. Some even say, you know, he's called as a man of sending. Or, or more specifically, when he dies, it shall be sent. And when you think about it in context, I think this meaning really makes a lot of sense. For one, Enoch, his father, had already been preaching the coming of God's judgment for all the sin and the wickedness in the world. And then secondly, if you calculate the years of Methuselah, what you see is that when Methuselah died, right when Methuselah died, is when the flood came. So the meaning of Methuselah really fits 
the context that when he dies, it comes. What comes? The flood comes. God's judgment comes. In other words, Methuselah served as a countdown timer to God's judgment of the flood. And the name Methuselah was to serve as a warning to everyone around that after a specific time, God's judgment would fall on all who would rebel and sin against him, unless, of course, they repented. So there's a definite anticipation of judgment against sin. Now, Methuselah's son was Lamech. And again, this is a different Lamech. This is a righteous, godly Lamech of Seth's line. It's not the same unrighteous Lamech of Cain's line. And this is what we read of Lamech in verses 28 to 31. It says, When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters, and thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. Now this righteous Lamech from Seth's line, he's now living under the sin-cursed world. And he's grieving over the sin and, and the effects of sin and the curse. And so he names his son Noah. And guess what Noah means? It means rest or comfort. And what really Lamech is doing is he's expressing faith and hope in God. Because he thinks that Noah may be the promised offspring who would remove the curse of sin and death. And that's why in verse 29 it says about Lamech, and he called his name Noah saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. You see, Lamech is longing for the kind of life that there was in the garden before there was sin and the curse. He had, he's expressing his hope and his faith in God and what he had promised. See, the only hope that believers have while living in a sin-cursed world is the coming of the Redeemer. That's the only hope every believer has. And that's the same hope that you see with Lamech. He thought, though, wrongly, just like Eve, that his son, Noah, would be the one who would defeat the power of sin and death and thus bring relief and comfort to all of mankind. You know, I think what, what you see here is even a huge contrast between the two Lamechs. The unrighteous Lamech from Cain's line he gloried in himself and he, he celebrated murder and death and, uh, and, and unrighteousness. But the righteous Lamech from Seth's line, 
He sees sin and the, the effects of sin and the curse. And he recognizes that he is helpless. And he doesn't glory in himself. No, he hopes in God. And he's seeking deliverance from sin and the curse of sin and death. And he's hoping in God. What a big contrast between the two Lamechs, even though they bore the same name. Now, Lamech's son is Noah, and he named him Rest or Comfort. And even though Noah is not the, the particular promised offspring who would defeat Satan and sin and death, Noah is used by God to bring a kind of relief, but not in the way that Lamech thought. No, God would bring relief, but he would bring relief through the judgment of the flood. So ironically, Lamech hoping for relief is also Lamech hoping for the judgment to come to pass. Now you say, but, but how does God bring rest if, even if it was of some sort through the flood? Well, think about it. And we'll see this in more detail over the next coming weeks. When God brings the flood, he destroys all those who are sinful and rebellious and there is a general curbing of evil. And then even after the flood, as, as Noah and his family comes out, God institutes laws to protect human life. And we'll see that in Genesis 9. And then again, uh, he will, God will also bring about changes after the flood in the animal world. And again, we'll see that in Genesis 9, where he says that he will put the fear of man in the animals. Which means to say that right now in the world, in the time of Lamech, from, from after the fall till up to the flood, even the animal kingdom is against man. They have no fear of man. So if there's any of these animals, their only thinking is they're antagonistic towards human beings. They want to attack mankind. So it wasn't a safe place. It was all part of the effect of the curse. But God would bring some kind of correction even there after the flood where he will put the fear of man even in the animals. So the rest that will be brought will be in the sense of restraining of evil after the flood and even restraining of the animal kingdom and providing protection for man. But in an ultimate sense too, God brought relief and rest by preserving the seed of the woman, that godly line through the flood. And, and that godly line would now come through Noah. See, Satan thought he was prospering, that his line was just propagating so much and most of the world was all of his offspring, the offspring of the serpent. And it had... And it's coming down to just a handful of people, Noah and his family. And yet God preserves them. And then through Noah, his plan would be carried forward. 
And it is through the line of Noah, the true redeemer, the true offspring, that promised offspring, Jesus Christ would come. And as you turn to the New Testament, many, many thousands of years later, then Jesus would say to each person, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Because he is the only one who can ultimately give rest from this curse and sin and death. Now Genesis 5 ends in verse 32 where it says, After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And again, there's a slight change in the pattern of the genealogy, the normal pattern where three sons are mentioned. And this change, it's signaling that something is going to change or, or there's going to be a pause now in what God is doing. And really, it's going to prepare us now to the next narrative, that's the narrative of the flood that we'll see in chapters 6 through 9. I wonder if there's anyone listening to this message who does not know Jesus. Or at least you might know him intellectually, but really you don't have a life of intimacy with Jesus. And your life does not reflect that intimacy with Jesus, where everything is about Jesus. Well, let me tell you, friend, that there is coming a judgment for all those who will not turn from their ways for all those who will reject Jesus, there is coming a judgment. In fact, on that final day, all those who just went the way of Cain and those who continue to reject Jesus, Jesus himself will cast all these people into the lake of fire. And if you continue down that path, you too will be cast into that lake of fire. It'll be an eternity of ruin and misery, away from the, the gracious favor of our Lord. But let me also tell you, friend, your end need not be that way. Because if today you recognize that you are indeed a sinner, you recognize your wretchedness and your sinfulness, and that there is nothing you can do to save yourself, and that you do indeed stand before God as a condemned person, let me tell you that God has provided a way for you to be saved. You see, God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world. And Jesus took the very thorns of the ground that came as a result of the curse and took it on himself. Where there was a crown of thorns on his head, symbolizing that he bore the curse on himself. And he died on the cross to pay the price 
for the sin of people like you and me. And then he rose up on the third day, defeating Satan and sin and death. Let me tell you, friend, today is the day to turn from your ways and to turn to Jesus while there is time for judgment is coming. And if you want to know more about what it means to turn from your sin and to turn to Jesus, you can email us at connect at gracebiblechurch.org.au and we'd love to talk with you. But for those of us who are believers, you know, even as we've looked at this genealogy, let us be reminded to walk intimately with Jesus our Lord trusting in his good provision and then telling others of the judgment that is going to come to all those who continue the way of Cain and and continue to reject Jesus. But then also telling them that there, there is a way of salvation, that God has still shown mercy and grace and that is available through Jesus Christ if they will turn from their ways. And as we do that, let us each and every day, as we live in the sin-cursed world, live in faith in Jesus Christ in what he's done, but also in hope that whether we die now or we will be changed, that we will live in the hope of the coming of Jesus Christ. I pray that these words would truly be a blessing to you as you have listened today. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that your word continues to inform us of how you brought Jesus into this world, of how you preserved a godly line in the midst of a wicked world. But it also teaches us that even now, for those of us who are believers, that there is hope beyond the grave, that death will not be our end, but there is life of living life with you, that this relationship with Jesus will continue on beyond the grave. And perhaps there will be some of us who are still alive when Jesus comes. And and that would mean that we would not even face death, physical death, that we would immediately be uh, translated into the very presence of God. Oh, what a glorious hope that is. Father, may we live as we live in this sin-cursed world with this hope and this faith continue to strengthen us. And in the meantime, help us also to be concerned about those around us who do not know Jesus and who are living the path of ruin. And help us to, in the way we live our lives, make much of Jesus, showing the hope that we have in him, but also proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to those who are lost. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word that continues to sustain us. And we thank you for Jesus. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.